Bibles to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And again, it's I entitled the psalm, The Joy and the Forgiveness of Sins. The Joy and the Forgiveness of Sins. Psalm 106 here is a wisdom psalm. And wisdom psalms focus on some of the same issues that are found in the book of Proverbs. These psalms, wisdom psalms, present a sharp contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And they address God's blessings and cursings, and they often focus on righteous living. This psalm, 106, covers a lot of the same history that we covered in Psalm 105. So Psalm 105 and 106 are, you could call them the companion psalms. They go together. And even though their emphasis is different, Psalm 106 emphasizes the rebellion of the people despite the steadfast goodness of God. So if Psalm 105 is about remembering, Psalm 106 is about forgetting, and specifically, God's people forgetting about His mercies. And you know, I believe that's why Jesus, in, in, when, he, when He instituted the, 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 the communion supper, as He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Do it often in remembrance of me. And so, because he knows in, in, in our life, in our busy schedules, we have that tendency to just, you know, forget about them and, and putting kind of at the, the bottom of our list while we take care of other things in our life. So, again, it's, it's sad, but we many times do forget uh, the goodness of God. And a specific, uh, specifically, again, forgetting about his mercies and the wonders of his love. This is a psalm of praise. Just like Psalm 105 is. In that it calls for praising God, again, despite the short memories of His people. The arrangement of Psalm 106 goes like this. A call to praise in verse 1. Secondly, a report on the status of the present generation in verses 2 through 15. Third, a presentation of the works of God on behalf of uh, earlier generations in verses 16 through 34. Fourth, a concluding request in verses 44 through 47. And fifth and last, words of praise that, to finish book four of the Psalms, verse 48. The theme of 106 is a confession of Israel's unfaithfulness, a song of repentance by the nation Israel as the people return from captivity. And God patiently delivers us in spite of our forgetfulness and willful rebellion. The author, we don't know. Anonymous, obviously. After reading this psalm, you might say, boy, those Israelites, they sure were a sorry bunch of sinners. But what we should be doing is applauding the psalmist for telling the truth about his own people. Because you see, most historians talk about their nations in the best light. I mean, they just say all the good things about them and say all the great achievements that they had. And, and then they blame other nations rather than their own for their shortcomings. But the psalmist doesn't do this here. The psalmist tells the truth about his people, and he includes himself. The writer is also to be applauded for that. I said he, like I said, he includes himself with uh, his struggling people. We see that in verse 6 and verse 47. The purpose of this psalm is not to condemn Israel for their rebellion, but to give glory to God for his long-suffering and his mercy towards his people. So in order to glorify God, the writer had to show us God's mercy compared to Israel's repeated disobedience. The psalm was probably written after the Babylonian captivity when the Jewish people were scattered 
and they were a remnant who had returned to the land to rebuild the temple and restore the nation. We see that in verses 44 through 47. After praising the Lord in verses 1 through 6, the writer points out several serious sins that Israel had committed. And he starts with the Exodus and he ends with the Babylonian captivity. And at the heart of the list, he places Israel's rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. Now, he didn't list those chosen events in the order that they occurred. Because, you see, his purpose was to teach us the ways of God, not necessarily the order of events. So let's begin with Psalm 106 with verses 1 through 3. And the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all His praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and He who does righteousness at all times. So Psalm 105 is a review of God's faithfulness. Psalm 106 is a review of man's sinfulness. Psalm 105 covers the events up to the Exodus from the time that Israel left Egypt. And Psalm 106 covers the events from the Exodus up to what seems to be the Babylonian captivity. Now, if we ever took the time to write down all the amazing, mighty acts or glorious miracles in the Bible, I think we'd be blown away. Because they cover every phase of life. Think about what God has done for us personally. How about, again, how about birth? How about your personal development? How about saving you from sin and death? He's given us detailed guidance through the Word of God. He's given us loving friends, many of them here at this church. He's given us family. He's given us wives and husbands and children. You know, wonderful mothers and and parents, you know, fathers, beautiful children, grandchildren. The list goes on and on and on. You know, if you never if you've never seen a miracle, look closer. You will see God's power and you'll see his loving hand in your life. You'll see his involvement on your behalf. And you know what? God still performs miracles today. People think all the time miracles are, are, are things that, you know, that are just impossibilities, which they are. But God's miracles are the everyday things of life that we take for granted. You know, if we had to think to to breathe, I don't know how many of us would be around. God had just made that an automatic thing in our life. That's a life is a miracle to see and to think and to breathe and to touch and to smell and to hear. Those are miracles that God has given us to move around to get a birth. I mean, a miracle. It's just. All those things we take for granted because they're, they're just everyday, you know, current things that happen in our life. So, again, God still performs miracles today. The psalmist here urges praise for Jehovah God because Israel's sin can't wear out his loving kindness. You can't wear out God's loving kindness. He, he, you can't stop him from loving you. There aren't enough words in our vocabulary that can satisfactorily express the mighty works, the mighty miracles of God or give him the praise that he deserves. So God's, God's first message through Malachi was this in Malachi 1-2. I have loved you, says the Lord God. And the people replied, in what way have you loved us? Even though the message was specifically addressed to Israel, It's a message of hope to all people in all times. 
He loves us. Plain and simple, God loves us. And it's really sad that a lot of people aren't sure about God's love. And they use politics and they use how good the economy is doing to determine how they're doing in life. You know, if God is blessing me, he loves me. And then some people think if he's not blessing me, he doesn't love me. And in Israel's case, because the government was corrupt and the economy was bad, the Israelites automatically thought that God didn't love them. But they were wrong. God loves all people all the time. Why? He made them. But his eternal rewards go to only those who are faithful to him. Those who have the right to share in the blessing that the psalmist looks forward to here are those only who obey his commandments. You know, we can't expect God to bless us when we're not, you know, obeying him, when we're not doing the things that he commands. I mean, as parents, we don't bless our children for disobedience. Why would we expect the Heavenly Father to bless us for being disobedient to Him? Let's look at verse 4 and 5 now. The psalmist says, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. The psalmist prays here that he may share in the restoration of Israel, seeing God's favor placed back upon them the psalmist wants to see the satisfaction of seeing the good gladness and glory of god's inheritance for israel verse six notice he says we have sinned he didn't say they have sinned he's included himself in the struggles of the the people we have sinned with our fathers we have committed iniquity we have done wickedly here the psalmist gives the main purpose for this psalm It's the confession of the constant sin of Israel all through its history. The nation of Israel is admitting that they don't deserve the mercy that it's praying for, but it's the most important condition of forgiveness and being restored to God's favor. The psalmist says, we have sinned with our fathers. That expresses how united the nation was. And then he goes on to talk about the blessedness of the holy life. The blessedness of the holy life, it's possible. It wouldn't be mentioned here and all through the scriptures like it is if it was just a nice thought. If it was just a nice idea and not a truly possible way of life. Surely, if sin is the terrible thing that God hates, and it is, God hates sin. He must have taken this into consideration in his work of redemption when he said, Son, you need to go to the cross for the sins of the people. He had to take that in consideration. Again, when he instituted his redemptive work, which was a way for delivering us from sin. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we are powerless to the hold that sin has upon our life. What is the first and great commandment? It's a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6, 5. It's a commandment to develop your attitude towards God, which is the source of the holy life. Secondly, not only is that blessed life, holy life possible, you enter into that blessed life in a specific way. And what is that specific way? By surrendering your life. 
to God. It means dying to self. It means dying to, my, to my, the cravings of my flesh. It means denying myself to the things that, that bring displeasure to God. Dying to self, which is dependent on getting rid of whatever we know is contrary to the will of God and displeases God. And we have to give it up, even though it might be something that we truly love. And we have to surrender all of our powers and all of our possessions to the total control and direction of God. Jesus himself said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And you see, between his words, let him deny himself and follow me, there's a cross. He said, take up your cross every day. The cross was an instrument of death. And what he's saying here, you need, to, you need to lay upon that cross and you need to die to yourself, to your whims, to, your, to, to the, the cravings of the flesh. All of those things in order to follow me. Because you can't follow me and follow the cravings of your flesh. People are willing to pay a high price for something that has lasting value. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Jesus would demand, uh, uh, demand this. Okay, demand this much commitment from his followers. There are at least three conditions that people have to meet who want to follow Jesus. All right? And that is, we have to be willing to deny ourselves. We have to be willing to carry our cross. And we have to follow him. Anything else is just cheap talk. That's all it is. You see, when Jesus called you to himself... It was a call to die. Think about that. It was a call to die. Then, when, we're get, when we've given up ourselves to God, when we've surrendered ourselves to God, we're to believe that He accepts us and we're to keep trusting in Him every single day, every single hour to cleanse us by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, from all sin. And if we will continue to surrender ourselves to God and to trust him, nothing can get in the way of us entering into this blessed, holy life. And then third, the blessed life is the most blessed. But there are some things that you need to avoid. And that's the misery of a guilty conscience. Powerlessness over sin. You see, because nobody can effectively serve God if they're abiding in sin, if they're living a life of sin. If, knowing that your influence has been evil rather than good, of God hiding his face from you. What do you win in this blessed life? Inner peace. There are so many people in this world who are looking for peace. And they're looking at it maybe through, uh, uh, through, through politics, through a certain party, a certain president. They're looking at it maybe in their bank account, in their job, in their boyfriend, girlfriend, their husband, wife, drugs, alcohol. They are searching for peace. But the true and lasting inner peace will come when a person knows the truth of Jesus Christ, knows him in a personal relationship. This blessed life in Christ brings blessed inner peace. It brings confidence in your relationship to God. It brings power with God for man and with man for God. You have God's loving kindness, which the psalmist says is better than life. And you have a guaranteed hope 
In Christ, you have a guaranteed hope. In this life, you have no guarantees but death. But in Christ, you have a guaranteed hope for all eternity. When God's people live this kind of a life, then there's going to be a turning to God on the part of the world. We don't see that now. And you know what? We haven't seen it in a long time. And I don't think we will see it until God's people live and sound and look and act like Jesus Christ. They want to see something different. They want to see a power that they aren't seeing in everyday life. There will be a turning to God because men will see that God's people have a secret source of joy. They have this peace man. they have this purity. They have this strength. And, and you know what? Those people will come to want it. And that's what people want today. They want a true lasting joy. They want a peace. They want a rest. That they don't have right now that this world can't give them. I don't care how how wealthy or famous they are, how powerful they are. They can't find it apart from Christ. Look at verses 7 through 12 now. The psalmist goes on to say, Our fathers in Egypt, notice, did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, notice, nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his power known, his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Here is the first case of Israel's sin. Unbelief and murmuring at the Red Sea. Did God just bring us out here to die? You know, how are we going to cross this sea? There's no way. In the eyes of man. But the amazing things that God had done to deliver them from Egypt, it failed to make them understand God's character and God's will and his mighty power. And at the first sign of danger, the Israelites rebelled against God. They rebelled against his purpose for them. Their behavior would have justified Jehovah saying, you know what, I'll just, you know, you need, you just, I'm just going to send you back to Egypt, forget it. But thank God, God's love and his mercy does not depend upon my faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness that we can depend upon. It says in verse 8 that what God did, he says, I did it for my name's sake. I did it because I said I would do it. I did it to, to, to maintain, to uphold my character and my reputation. You see, he's not like man who says one thing and then doesn't do it. God says it, he's going to do it. Because his word and his character and his reputation stand upon what he says. You see, if God didn't follow through with what he said, this would be meaningless to us. It would mean nothing. But he kept his word and his mercy was, was, was placed upon the people. And it was to make his power known to all the nations of the earth. He rebuked the sea. When the children of Israel stand there and they, they couldn't cross it, they were mountains on each side, the, the, the Red Sea was right before them, they're freaking out. 
What are we going to do? God, did you bring us out here to die? What does he do? He parts the Red Sea. He took them right through the middle of the Red Sea on dry land, just like he took them through the wilderness as if they were on dry land. And then after everybody got safely across, after all of God's people got safely across, the waters came back and totally destroyed their enemies, the Egyptian army. And as a result, at least for three days, their faith was revived and they sang praises to God for that deliverance. Look at verses 13 and 15 now. Now let's look at 12 first. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Now look at verse 13. They soon forgot his works. You know, between verse 12 and verse 13 was only three days. I mean, they saw the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. They walked across it on dry land. They watched it close up upon the Egyptian army, destroying them. Three days later, it says they forgot it. Or they forgot his works. It says they did not wait for his counsel, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and they tested God uh, in the desert. And he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. From verse 12 to 13, as I said, three days have gone by since that mighty miracle. And now they're in the wilderness. And the, the Israelites were so determined on getting the food and the water they wanted, that they wanted, that it blinded them concerning the things that God wanted for them. They were more concerned about satisfying their worldly appetite, their physical cravings right then and there than, than, than wanting the lasting satisfaction that God could give them. You see, they wanted what they wanted then and now. They didn't want what was best for them. And that's the way we are. That's our natural inclination. I want it now. I don't want to wait. And God makes us wait many times so he will give us the best. What we so often unsettle, unsettling for second best. God has so much for us if we trust him and wait upon him. But they didn't want what was best for them. They refused to trust God and they refused to, to let God take care of them. May this be a lesson to us this evening. If we complain long enough, and here's the bad part, God just might give you what you ask for. And you know, that's not really ever that good. Because, you're not, you know, if it's not the best thing for me, I don't want it. If you're not getting what you want, maybe it's because God knows it's not the best thing for you. Trust him to provide for you. Trust him to take care of you. Listen to Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. God has a future. He has a hope for you, but you need to seek him. Wait upon him. Find out, Lord, what is my purpose in this life? What is my purpose for being here in this world? In Jeremiah, God is saying, look, <clears throat> I have plans for you. He says, there are plans for good. They're not plans for disaster. They're plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. 
You see, God makes his plans for his people and their good plans that eventually bring hope and peace. So there's no need to be, dis- to be afraid or discouraged. God cares for us so much. You know, our welfare is the, the central concern of his heart. His will for us comes from his heart. Then, then the psalmist refers to a second sin of Israel. After they crossed the Red Sea, Israel refused to wait for God's plan, it says his counsel, for providing for their needs. They begin to complain about God. They murmured against him once, uh, 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 more than once within a few weeks. In the wilderness, we read that they lusted for meat. They wanted quail. They wanted meat. They were tired of the manna. And it says they tested God by demanding that God prove to them that he was with them. And how many times do we ask God for a sign? Lord, prove to me you're with me. And this is what the people of Israel were doing. God punished them by giving them what they wanted. Like I said, many times when we ask God to give me what I want, it's not always the best for me. And, I, and I've, you heard me say, but don't, don't ask for God to give you what you deserve. Because you'll go up in a puff of smoke. Because we deserve nothing but hell. Plain and simple. But God punished them by giving them what they wanted. But their lust brought a plague. It brought leanness to their soul. It brought sickness and it brought death. Not life and vigor. Again, you see, many times what we choose in life and we think is best for us, it ruins us, man. The day I began to choose a life of drugs and alcohol, thinking it was cool and that's what was happening, man. That, that was that. Hey, it took it, it just in five years, it took me down. That's all it can do. And it wasn't until I came to Christ and he removed that desire, he began to lift me up. That's what God does. He takes people from the pit and he lifts them out of that pit. And there's no pit so deep that the hand of God cannot reach down and take you out of. That was a little quote from Corey Ten Boom, who was a, uh, a Nazi camp, uh, a, a prison camp prisoner. But even in her horrible experience in a, in, a, in a Nazi prison camp, she said there was no pit so deep that God's hand could not reach down and pull me out of. That's the amazing and powerful God that we serve. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all of your need. Notice it says need, not all of your wants. <laughs> God will supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. What I think are riches are, 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 are trash in God's eyes. God knows true riches, and he wants to give me true riches. He wants to give me lasting riches. He wants to give me riches that are going to benefit me, that are going to be good for me. Verses 16 through 18, the psalmist goes on. When they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram, a fire was kindled uh, in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. Jealousy over Moses' authority and Aaron's authority was the third sin committed in the wilderness. Here Aaron is called a saint of the Lord because, you see, he was set apart by the high priest, by God and the high priest for, for, again, the priesthood. 
Those leaders, uh, Dathan and Abiram, that opposed him and, and Moses, it says here that they were swallowed up by the earth. Those who were trying to officiate as priests by offering incense, they were burned by fire from heaven. Verses 19 through 23. They made a calf in Horeb, and they worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Worshiping the golden calf at Horeb was the fourth sin that they committed while they were in the wilderness. By worshiping that golden calf, they changed their glory. That is, they changed their God for the likeness of a dumb animal. Now, many times we say, oh, well, I wouldn't worship a statue or an idol. But, you know, we, an idol becomes anything that I give my attention to. That takes the place of my God. The people sinfully forgot everything God had done for them in Egypt and at the Red Sea. And if it wasn't for Moses, man, God would have wiped them out. God would have destroyed them on the spot. If it hadn't been for Moses, who stood between the people and God? Kind of hold on, Lord. Hold, you know, before you wipe them out, you know, let, me, let me pray with them. Let me pray for them. Moses prayed for the people. And this refers to the time when the Lord wanted to destroy the people for worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. Verses 24 through 27. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow the descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. When the spies came back from Canaan, when God promised the people, he said, you guys, I'm going to give you a land that is flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you a land that, that, that is fruitful and it's abundant and it's going, to, it's going to feed you. It's going to take care of you. You can build your homes there. They didn't believe him. And when the spies went to see the land that God promised and they came back from Canaan, Israel then committed their fifth sin, unbelief and fear. They rejected that wonderful and fruitful land of plenty, Canaan. They didn't believe God's promise that he was giving them that land. Instead of the people boldly getting ready to go in and take it, because God says, I've given it to you, go get it. Instead of boldly going, getting ready to take the land, they went into their tents and they pouted and they murmured against God. Oh, God doesn't really love us and God's not really giving us the land. And it's funny, it says they went into their tents and they pouted and they, they murmured. Now, now, how did God know? They did this in their tents. Hey, God hears everything we say. In the quiet of your room, in the quiet of your heart, God knows what we're saying. Psalm 139 tells us he knows our thoughts from afar off. He knows them before they even come off of our tongue. He knows all the thoughts of our heart. He knows all the things, all the ideas, that we're, everything that we're saying. He, he sees right through us. They rejected that wonderful land that God promised them. They complained. They went into their tents and they pouted. God is against us. 
Then God solemnly swore to them, you know what? You guys are going to die in the wilderness. He warned them that their children would be driven out of the land of Canaan if they committed the same offenses against him. Verses 28 through 31. It says, Now they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked God to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. This is the sixth sin that they committed. They took part in the abominations of the Moabite worship. The Israelites became devoted followers of Baal rather than the true living God. The people ate sacrifices that were offered to dead, that, that, that were made to the dead. Sacrifices that were offered to lifeless gods. And by doing this, they provoked God to anger. And it says a plague broke out. The word plague literally means a smiting. It broke out on the people. But because of quick and smart action by Phineas, who was Aaron's grandson, it stopped the plague. And the zeal of Phineas was rewarded with a covenant of everlasting priesthood. Verse 32 and 33. Let me find my place here. Here we go. 32 and 33. It says, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went, so that it went will, ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. The murmuring at Meribah, the word Meribah means waters of strife. So the murmuring at Meribah, this murmuring at the waters of strife, is the seventh sin that's named here. And maybe it's mentioned last because this was the sin that Moses was involved in. The people's murmuring and complaining, their unbelief caused Moses to lose his patience. And he lost his temper. And he assumed some things that resulted in Moses being punished by being excluded from going into Canaan. God didn't let him take the people into the promised land. Because Moses got angry and he made some accusations against the people and he misrepresented God. Verse 34 through 39. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Israel continued to disobey God even after entering Canaan. They didn't destroy the Canaanites like they were ordered to do. They didn't run the people out of the land that God told them to, 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 to you know, chase them out. They allowed them to stay in the land and they lived with the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those that were not people of God. The Gentiles represent people of the world. So people of the world and the people of God, they were living together. And after, those, after many years, as, they, as God's people mixed and mingled with the world, they, that, that they allowed to stay in the land, they learned the world's ways. 
And as a result, they served the Canaanite idols. You see, if you live in the world and you mix with the world long enough, you begin to be like the world and act like the world and do like the world. And the people even did some of the most horrendous things. The people, God's people, began to sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons, which were false gods that were in reality demonic deceptions. And what made this human sacrifice such a terrible sin is emphasized by the fact that they were young children sacrificed to pagan gods by their parents. And as a result, the land of Canaan was polluted with innocent blood, the innocent blood of those children that were sacrificed to demons. And I think we can see that today in, in, in the cases of abortion where millions of children are aborted every year just because they're an inconvenience. Oh, I have plans. I'm too young. You know, I have goals in my life. I want to go to school. And the land of the United States of America is polluted with the blood of those children. And there will be a price to pay. Turning away from Jehovah God and serving other gods is described here as being defiled by what they did. And they were immoral in their practices and in their infidelity to their marriage vow to God. Israel continually turned away from God. Now you would think, how could they turn away from their God and worship the idols of the land after all of the great miracles that they saw? But you know what? We've also seen God's great miracles but sometimes we find ourselves attracted, drawn by the gods of this world. Money, power, convenience, fame, sex, pleasure, and the list goes on. And just like Israel, those things help us to forget God. And I say help us in the wrong way. They make us forget God. So you see, we're at risk to forget him. And giving in to the pleasures of an evil world. Remember everything that God has done for you so that you won't be drawn away from Him by the world's pleasures. Verses 40 through 46. Therefore, that is, therefore means as a result of all of these things. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his own people so that he abhorred or hated his own inheritance. And he gave them into the land of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them and they were brought into, the subjection under, uh, brought into subjection under their hand. Many times God delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, notice, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. You know, God's anger was so stirred up against his unfaithful and rebellious people that he delivered them into the hands of their enemies. Time after time, during the time of the judges, God rescued his people from their oppressors. But they still refused to follow God's counsel. So he brings them even lower and lower. But every time he would remember the covenant he made with them. 
and he gives up the idea of giving them up. He even caused their captors to pity them. The reference here seems to be, uh, seems to be referring to the, the, the fairly humane treatment of the Jews once they were carried away to Babylon. God allowed trouble to come to the Israelites in order to help them. Keep that in mind. Our troubles can be helpful because they're designed to do, first of all, they're designed to humble us. God knows how to humble us. Secondly, to break us from the attraction of the world and to drive us back to God. Third, God will allow troubles upon our life to bring us back to prayer. When do we usually pray? (laughs) When we're in trouble. Life is breezing along, things are going good, and, and, and we don't pray. Everything's the minute I have an emergency, the minute things go wrong, and I see this this problem is much bigger than me. Oh God, help me! Fourthly, God allows prayer uh, troubles upon our life to allow us to experience more of God's faithfulness, to show us that He answers prayer. Fifth, He allows troubles in our life to make us more dependent upon God and less dependent upon myself. And sixth, he allows troubles in my life to encourage us to submit to God's purposes for our lives. And lastly, to make us more compassionate toward others who are in trouble. This is a beautiful picture of God's great love for his people who deserved nothing but his judgment. Thank God for his compassion. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his patience toward us. And thank God it's not decided by how faithful I am to him. God was merciful to us in sending his son to die for us on a cross. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while I still wanted nothing to do with God, when I I could have cared less for God, when I could have cared less for what Jesus did upon the cross, God said, still, Joe, I'm going to have him die for your sins. Even though you don't want me. Even though you could care less for me. I'm still going to send my son to die on a cross for your sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he did this for us while we were still in bondage to our sins, how much more merciful will, be, will, we, will he be to us now that we're his children? Verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name to triumph in your praise. This prayer is the best part of the psalm. You see, confession of sin really places Israel on the mercy of God. It's, it's, a, it's God's mercy that, 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 spares his judgment, that spares his judgment coming upon us. The psalmist wants to see the people return to their land where they can fulfill the purpose for which they were called. And the praise of Jehovah is the reason for Israel's existence. Verse 48 as we close. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen. The psalm ends with a common display of worship. 
It's a praise to God to appropriately finish the psalm in the fourth book of the Psalms. He's a blessed God from eternity and will be to eternity. So as the psalmist says, may we all worship him and praise him. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful word, God. We thank you, Father, for being a wonderful God, a loving God, a faithful God, a compassionate God, a merciful God, a gracious God. And Lord, we can go on thanking you for all the wonderful things that you are, Father. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for saving us, Lord. Thank you for sending your son to die upon a cross for us when we still didn't want anything to do with you, Lord. When we never had any thoughts about you, Father. When it wasn't about you, it was all about me. Thank you, Lord. And again, it just shows the infinite wisdom, your infinite wisdom, God, that you have for us, God. You knew You knew that we needed you. You knew that we would come to a place where we'd call upon your name, God. And that's our prayer for all people, Lord. That they would come to that place where they recognize that we are nothing and you are everything. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've never made that commitment to him. And you're just simply existing day to day. You have no idea of why you're here. You don't know your purpose in life. But God does. God wants to use you for his glory. But he first wants to set you free from your sins to give you new life, to give you a clean slate in life, to to, to start again, to be able to start over. Worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God has spoken to your heart and you recognize your need for Jesus Christ, then while we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.